In the name of Jesus, uh, dear friends in Christ, uh, there once lived a man by the name of Darius in 4th century B.C. Greece, and he was a friend of Alexander the Great, the mighty ruler. And he had done Alexander wrong a few years back. And now Darius found himself in the unenviable position of needing some money. So he was going to go before his friend, the king, and ask for some money. So he had an audience with Alexander the Great, and he asked Alexander, he said, I know it's been a while since we've talked, Uh, we're friends, but I did you wrong a few years ago, but I really am in desperate financial straits. I could use ten talents of money. Alexander the Great said, well, I'll consider your request and get back to you the next day. The next day, Alexander the Great decided to grant the request of his friend, and he had shipped to Darius' house not ten, but fifty talents of money. Upon receiving the 50 talents of money, Darius was blown away. He didn't expect even a dime, let alone 50 talents of money. So he made an appointment to go see Alexander the next day. And the next day he said, my friend, my king, my ruler, I'm sure you remember what I did to you. I don't deserve anything. And if you had given me 10 talents of money, that would have been sufficient. But you gave me 50 And to that, Alexander the Great said, yeah, I remember what you did to me a few years ago, and it wasn't nice, and I haven't forgotten, and I'm not doing it because you're so good. And yes, ten talents of of money would have been sufficient for you to receive, but I decided to grant your request by fivefold to give you 50 talents of money out of grace as a free gift. Grace has been defined as God's special favor freely given to undeserving people. And as we continue in our sermon series today on desperate grace, today we're going to look at the gift that God is so, was so desperate to give his Old Testament people. It was a gift they truly did not deserve. And it's a gift they would finally receive in grace, the gift of the promised land. Now, as we've seen in this series so far, grace is that undeserved love of God. And as I like to often say in Bible classes, the Bible is the greatest love story ever told. It's the story of God's grace and love for us. And in this divine drama, the greatest love story ever told, the major thread that ties together the narrative, the 66 books of the Bible, is that thread of grace. Now sometimes as believers, we look at God's Word, and we know there's two Testaments, the Old and the New Testament. And sometimes we set up uh, a false dichotomy. Sometimes we're led to believe erroneously that, you know, it's only in the New Testament where there's gospel and good news and grace. And the Old Testament is all full of law. And as we've seen in this series so far, nothing could be further from the truth. There is grace throughout the Old Testament. As we've seen, God made this universe out of grace. He made Adam and Eve out of grace. And as we go further through the biblical storyline in this series, we're going to see in this divine drama, this greatest love story ever told, there's many characters, but there's only one hero, and that's God. And he is that awesome divine dispenser of that grace. Now, as Pastor Dave opened us up in the first week of the series, he took us back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were made out of grace, and they were made uh, to serve him. But when they sinned, when they ate from the tree that they were not supposed to eat from, they realized their nakedness. They realized they were sinful. And they reacted that sin in a pattern that you and I, as their descendants in sin, have followed ever since. Adam and Eve wanted to try to hide. They wanted to try to lie, and they wanted to blame. We ever try that? We hide, we lie, and we blame. And God went looking for them in the garden, not to zap them, but to love them, 
to clothe them. And even though they would have to leave the Garden of Eden, the last verse of Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 3.24 says that God put an angel by the tree of life to guard that tree so that Adam and Eve and none of their descendants would ever eat from that tree of life and live forever in their sinfulness. He did that out of love. We know life changed when Adam and Eve ate from the tree. There now would be pain in childbearing. There would now be negative and stressful things associated with work. And death would now become a universal experience. But in the midst of the mess of the garden, three chapters and 15 verses into the greatest love story ever told, God comes up with a rescue plan for you and me. Genesis 3.15, he makes that very first promise of a Savior to Jesus for Adam and Eve, for you and me out of grace. Then we saw in the second week of the series that God called a man named Abraham to be the father of a great nation, and he made him quite a threefold promise in Genesis 12. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you offspring so numerous they're going to make up a nation, and this nation, this land will be blessed to be a blessing to many. Why did God call Abraham to that position? It was out of grace. Was it because Abraham had lived such a faithful life to God up to that point? No. We're not even sure Abraham necessarily was a believer in God at the time of his calling. But God called Abraham and he kept those promises to Abraham out of undeserved love, out of grace. And from that nation, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, the tribe of Judah will come, the ultimate blessing, the Savior of the world. Now, it's not an easy road as we've walked through the Old Testament storyline. Abraham and the other patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and their descendants. But God is faithful. Despite the times that they doubt and they stumble and they go their own way and they bellyache and they cry out to God, what have you done for me lately? The fact they forget about his grace, they forget about his love, they forget about his promises on a regular basis, God never gives up on them. The book of Exodus starts out chapter 1, there came a time... When Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham, Joseph, the number two man in Egypt, the prime minister, the right-hand man to the Pharaoh, there came a time when Joseph, who listened to God through those dreams and was faithful through the good and bad, and especially during those dreams, the years of the seven years of feast and the seven years of famine, listened to the Lord, and by God's wisdom saved his family, saved his clan, saved his people, saved that region of the world from starvation. There came a time that Joseph had passed, and a few generations go by, and the Egyptians forgot what Joseph had done. As a matter of fact, the Egyptians now are threatened by Joseph's descendants. They're threatened by the descendants of Abraham. That nation is growing too large, as God promised, so they decide to enslave them. Actually, in history, it's the first recorded attempt of a genocide of an entire race of people. That's what the Egyptians tried to do to the Hebrews. And they were enduring four horrific centuries of bondage. But during those 400 years as slaves, even though they often forgot about God and about his love, God never forgot about them. And one day, God in his grace calls out of retirement a man named Moses who was 80 years old, who's out in the middle of nowhere in Midian, content to be a shepherd the rest of his life. And he gives them the call of a lifetime via a burning bush to listen to the Lord and go before the most powerful man in the world, the Pharaoh of Egypt, and demand in the name of the Lord that Pharaoh let God's people go. And Moses reluctantly heeded that call, and God worked through Moses and sent ten mighty plagues. 
Now, sometimes I think we erroneously think of the plagues as sort of random acts of grossness, don't you? I mean, he sent frogs to cover the earth, sent bugs, sent flies, sent boils, sent darkness. But they're much more than random acts of grossness. These are powerful plagues that were designed intentionally to match up against one or more of the false Egyptian gods. Because the Egyptians had a god for blood and frogs and horses and darkness and all kinds of things. God is showing Pharaoh. He's showing his own people. There is only one true God. So in the end, Pharaoh cries uncle and he lets the people go. But the gang of Moses and his nation, scholars estimate about two million people. That's how big this nation had grown. Men, women, and children. God keeps his promises to Abraham. They were a mighty nation. Plus you throw in cattle, plus you throw in possessions. This is a huge nation that's going to leave Egypt in the Exodus, the single greatest event of the Old Testament. And then minutes out of Cairo, so to speak, This mob is leaving, and Pharaoh changes his mind and sends his army after him. And the children of Israel panic. They see this army charging after them. They see between them and freedom this huge body of water, the Red Sea. As a matter of fact, Exodus 14.10 says, As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord, Moses, you brought us to the desert to die. Wouldn't it have been better for us to stay in Egypt and keep serving as slaves? Really? It really would have been better to die a slow death in Egypt as slaves. How fickle could God's people be? How quick could they be to forget what they just witnessed through all those plagues? How soon were they to say, God, what have you done for me lately? It's a good thing we never do that, right? Or maybe we do. But God comes through for him again. And maybe for some of us, at least of a certain generation, I'm always going to picture this next event. Based on that great 1960s movie, The Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille, Charlton Heston as Moses, and God doing the doing and those waters of the Red Sea part, right? And the children of Israel do safely pass to freedom. And when they're through, then God causes those waters to recede, destroying Pharaoh's army. Why did God come through again for them? Was it because they were so good as a people? They were so faithful that they had been appreciative or they were going to be appreciative in the future? He came through not because they're so good, but because he is so good. He is an awesome God as we sang about today in one of our praise songs. An awesome, loving God who is abounding in amazing grace. Praise be to God. And God's going to demonstrate that grace. That undeserved love, not only during their time in Egypt, not only during the Exodus event, but during the years where they're going to wander in the wilderness. Years that are going to be characterized by more bellyaching, more griping, more complaining. God, what have you done for me lately? Outright idolatry. It seems like when they're out in the wilderness, each time they got maybe just a little bit thirsty, Or they thought maybe a hunger pain was coming on. You know, sometimes we think we're going to die of hunger, and it's only been two hours since we've eaten. You know, the the, the least slight thought that they might not get fed, they would cry out to God and think that he was going to forsake them, that they were going to die of thirst or starvation. God always came through. And perhaps the most egregious thing they did is what Sean talked about last week. When Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, What did they do? Led by Moses' own brother, Aaron, 
Ever have a brother turn on you? By his own brother Aaron, they melt down a bunch of gold and they form it in the shape of a calf and they worship it. Have you ever thought how long it should have taken the children of Israel to get from Egypt to the edge of Canaan, the promised land? Have you ever thought about it? How long did it take them? 40 years. Scholars estimate it should have taken them 11 days. Big difference between 11 days and 40 years. And it's not because Moses was a typical man who wouldn't stop to ask for directions along the way, as plagued some males. We know why it took 40 years, but God is still going to keep his promises of a land and descendants and blessed to be a blessing to his people, no matter what they do. And ultimately, the ultimate blessing, the Savior of the world, will come by grace. Now Moses, out of grace, from the top of a mountain, got to look down on the promised land, but he didn't get to enter it. Because the mantle of leadership is going to pass from Moses, who dies at age 120, to his understudy Joshua, who takes over at age 90 and will lead them for 20 years, and during that first year, will lead them finally into the gift that God wants them to receive. Now Joshua, who we talked about in our Old Testament text today, his name literally means Jehovah saves or the Lord is salvation. And it corresponds to the New Testament name of Jesus, which we'll see is significant. Now in the story of Joshua, this thread that we've been studying in this sermon series, as we've gone through the storyline of the Old Testament continues, God is doing the doing, that undeserved love out of grace. Not because... His people are so good, but because he is so good. And the people are the undeserving but blessed recipients of that grace. God continues that grace in Joshua. And with now God as the commander-in-chief and Joshua as general, they're ready to take and receive that gift God has been desperate to give them. We look at from our Old Testament text today that Erica read, Joshua chapter 1, verse 2. Have you ever thought about what Joshua would have felt like taking over for Moses? That's a pretty big job. Those are some awfully big footsteps to fill, to succeed Moses. Have you ever in your life figuratively had to try to follow a Moses? Maybe you had to follow a Moses in some relationship. Or maybe you had to follow a Moses-like figure in a job. Maybe you took over a position and the person that's vacating that position was literally a living legend in their department or in their company. There was no doubt Joshua had big sandals to fill in succeeding Moses. And God, without missing a beat, the next verse, Joshua 1, 3, says this. I'm going to reassure you, Joshua. I will give you every place where you set your foot on, as I promised Moses. Now, that's some pretty awesome reassurance, isn't it? But our Lord isn't done. Joshua 1, 5, he goes on and he says, No one, Joshua, will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And what a great, grace-filled, awesome promise that is. Amen? Amen. And that's a promise not just to Joshua a couple thousand years ago. Through his word, that's a promise he makes to you and I today, that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. It's a great, great-filled promise. 
as we go through our struggles in life. As we go through those days of wilderness wandering, we go through those stretches in life where we're struggling so tremendously on our way to the eventual promised land that God has won for us through Christ Jesus. We need to remember that God never broke a promise in the Old Testament. And God never has. He never will break break a promise in our life. He is incapable of that. And the Lord is still not done with Joshua or you or me. Let's look at verse 6. He says, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. And finally, to wrap this up and drive the point home in his opening, God says this to Joshua and to you and me. In one of the most encouraging verses, I think, in all of the Bible. For some of this may even be our confirmation verse. Joshua 1.9 The Lord says to you and me and to Joshua, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will go wherever you go. We see Joshua's hope and trust is not in his own goodness or his own faithfulness. His hope and trust is not in the goodness and the faithfulness of the people he's about to lead. His hope and his faith is in the goodness of his awesome, all-powerful, loving God, and that's a good thing. Now, after... God is done reassuring Joshua in the first part of that chapter. Let's pick up verse 17. Because now the people that Joshua is about to lead, and I think with good intentions, they pledge their support to their new leader. They say, Joshua, just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we'll obey you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Joshua, I wouldn't be sure whether to take that as a promise or a threat because Joshua had been around the block and he saw how well they listened to Moses. And it's like, okay, we're going to listen to you like we listened to Moses. Well, they didn't listen to Moses at all. But again, Joshua's faith and trust is not in the goodness of the people he's going to lead. It's in his awesome God. If we had time to go through it, the 24-chapter book of Joshua, you boil it down, it's basically a book of victory. It's a book where God is going to give that gift that he's been desperate to give his people as they finally take possession of that land, that land that God describes as a land flowing with milk and honey. Just as God was with them during the Exodus, just as God was with them during the wilderness wandering years out of grace, he is going to be with his people as they enter the promised land. A truly undeserved gift to a beloved people. And finally, from our Old Testament text today that Erica read, Joshua chapter 3, verses 4 and 17, the children of Israel are finally going to receive the gift. And they're at the banks of the Jordan River, and they need to cross the Jordan River to get into Canaan. And just like, as I said earlier in the message, as they left Egypt via a miraculous water crossing, the parting of the Red Sea, not coincidentally, they're also now going to enter the promised land via miraculous water crossing. Because verses 15, 16, and 17 say that the Jordan River was at flood stage, a dangerous, almost impossible time to cross it. But led by the Lord in the Ark of the Covenant, they will miraculously and safely enter the gift that God had wanted for them. In God's grace, he keeps his promise. In God's grace, he keeps loving his people, despite their failures and their follies and their foibles and their missteps and their doubts. And that's encouraging to you and I. Again, as we go through our struggles in life, as we go through our wilderness wanderings, where we sometimes struggle with some significant issues in relationships that we're a part of, Maybe we're really worried about our health or the health of a parent or someone else that we dearly love and care about. 
or those times when the mountains, those financial obstacles seem like they're too hard to climb and get over, when we're wrestling with some significant spiritual demons in our lives, when things at school, quite honestly, aren't going well, and they're even going worse at home, when the stress at work could not get greater, when the challenges in life we face seem to be the size of the sandals of Moses to fill, our same awesome God is there as he was with Joshua and his people in the Old Testament to love them. He promised to never leave them, never forsake them, and he would not. And our Lord will never leave us or forsake us. He calls us to be strong and courageous like Joshua and to always remember and never forget that our God has more grace in him than we have sins in us. Amen? Amen. Because quite bluntly, there are times in our lives where events, actions, circumstances, they may scare us. They get us off track. We find ourselves or others that we love wandering aimlessly around in the deserts of life. Like the children of Israel, like the children of Israel, sometimes walking around with self-inflicted wounds by our own poor decisions, our sinful nature, the fact that we live in a fallen world. Or there's other times that we really try to be faithful to what God has called us to do and be, and yet things just don't go right. Our plans go sour. People disappoint us. Our hopes burst into flames, or as the old saying goes, there's some days we feel like all the world is a black and white tuxedo, nice and neat, and here we come along, a pair of unpolished brown shoes. We just don't quite fit in. We all have those stretches. Some of us may remember of a certain age, a major news event from 1989. Let's go back in time. How many remember the Exxon Valdez oil spill? off the coast of Alaska. At that time, that was the largest oil spill ever to affect a natural area. And it greatly affected, adversely, the southwest coast of Alaska, harmed a lot of fish, tainted a lot of different animal populations. And it was said, and probably the part of the animal population that got the most publicity was what happened to the seals. Maybe the seals are so cute or whatever, I don't know. But the seal population was adversely affected, and it was said that in 1989 dollars, the average cost to rehabilitate and clean up each seal that was tainted by the oil was $80,000 a seal. Now that's expensive, okay? It took about a year to clean up. And so Exxon Oil Company and the local government wanted to host a celebratory event to celebrate the cleanup. So they picked one of the most attractive coves that had been affected along the coast. They picked the day in July. From what I understand, July is a beautiful time to be in Alaska. They set up bleachers. They invited the local community. They had all kinds of food there. They had an inspiring opening ceremony. And then was to come the highlight of the day, the releasing of the very first two seals that had been cleaned up from oil back into the blue waters. So those seals were released into the water amidst thunderous applause. People were so happy. The seals were playing each other, bopping in the blue water, whatever seals do. But it only lasted 30 seconds because 30 seconds after hitting the water, a whale appeared and ate both seals. (laughs) $160,000 down the drain. Sometimes things just don't work out as planned. And you know, to be honest, we can't do it alone in life. We love to put our faith and trust in me, myself, and I, and our timetable, and our agenda, and our plans. But think about it. If it's up to the children of Israel and their own doing, they would have never made it out of Egypt. They'd still be wandering in the desert. 
they would have never made it to the promised land. Because no matter what they did or didn't do, God in his grace and in his provision always came through. He never would leave them and never would forsake them. No matter what they did or didn't do. And the good news today is our Lord will never leave us or forsake us. No matter what we do or we don't do. As Paul writes in Philippians 4.13. We can do all things through Christ who gives us the strength. In his love, by his power, in his provision and through his grace. Now the person of Joshua in the Old Testament is often viewed as like a type or a foreshadowing of Jesus in the New Testament. As I said earlier, Joshua is really the same name as Jesus. It's just the Hebrew instead of the Greek version. And where God used Joshua in the Old Testament to save an undeserving, ungrateful people and give them a gift they did not deserve to lead them into the promised land, our Heavenly Father in the New Testament sent Jesus, his only son in this world to live the perfect life that you and I can't lead, to suffer and die the death that we deserve on a cross. And when he rose on Easter morning, defeating the power of sin, death, and the devil, it meant that all who believe in Jesus can have the ultimate promised land of heaven. We don't deserve it, but we are loved by our awesome God. And as Jesus states in our gospel that was read today, John 14, the first six verses, up there in heaven, in that great mansion, the Father has many rooms. And he desires every single room to be filled. He wants everybody saved. But as Jesus says so spot on in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's only by Jesus. He's the only way, the only path to the Father, the only way to the gift, the only way to the promised land. It's all about Jesus, only and all by grace. The great evangelist Billy Graham early in his career, was an itinerant preacher. That meant he would go from southern city to southern city. He would preach, do a revival, go on to a town the next day. And one day he was driving through a southern Alabama town. We got pulled over by a police officer. So Billy Graham obeyed. He rolled down his window and said, yes, officer. And the officer said, sir, do you realize you were speeding? And Billy Graham said, yes, I'm guilty. I was speeding. So the officer wrote him a ticket and said, you need to appear in town court the next day. So Billy Graham grabbed the motel, spent the night, and next morning was in court, 9 a.m. sharp. He stood before the judge, a mean-looking kind of guy, and the judge looked at the citation, looked at Billy Graham and said, you violated the law. This is serious. How do you plead? Billy Graham said, I plead guilty. I was speeding. So the judge took his gavel, pounded, said, guilty you are. That will be $10. One dollar for every mile per hour you're going over the speed limit. And then the judge looked at the citation again in the name. And then he looked at the face of this young man. And he sort of put the two together. He thought he looked familiar. And he recognized this is Billy Graham, that up-and-coming young preacher. And then again, he said to Billy Graham, you violated the law. This is an infraction. And there must be a penalty paid. And then the judge took from his own pocket his own wallet, took out $10 of his own earnings, stapled it to the ticket, took the stamp, marked it paid in full, gave it to the bailiff and said, bailiff, this man is free. I have paid his penalty in full. He is free to go. Billy Graham, for the rest of his years of active ministry, would tell this story. And he says how he was treated in grace that day in that Alabama courtroom is how God treats unrepentant sinners. Because like Billy Graham that day in terms of traffic, we have violated the law. 
There has been an infraction. It only takes one sin to separate us from God. And as Paul writes in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But praise be to our awesome, grace-filled God, who's paid our ticket of sin, who by his blood took it and stamped it paid in full for all who believe in him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that is a free gift, not a cheap gift, but a free gift. Thanks be to God that he treats us as he did his Old Testament people to that which we do not deserve. May we be desperate for that grace Desperate for that gift he wants to give us as we live out our lives of service to him on the way to the ultimate promised land of heaven. In the name of Jesus, amen.